0: At the time of recording this podcast, it is the weekend of our wonderful High History Festival, and we're celebrating the path from the real Danton Abbey to the tomb of Tutankhamun. And I have been lucky enough to be joined by Joe Fletcher, a professor at York University, and someone who knows everything on Egyptology and whose books adorn the library. <laughs> welcome Jo thank you so much for joining me today honestly I find your books the clarity and the way they're written brilliant so I I've got so many questions for you I don't know where to start but can I start by asking
1: you where did your passion for Egyptology come from how old were you well it's it started at the very beginning before I could even read Um, my mum had the most wonderful book on Tutankhamen funnily enough, really and the pictures, I absolutely adored the pictures, these, these smiley people, very colourful, you know, the way the Egyptians used to draw mm. themselves and portray themselves, and I was instantly smitten, and my earliest drawings in wax crayon at nursery school were the gods of ancient Egypt. <laughs> they looked great to me. I don't think anybody else was particularly impressed, but I thought they were pretty good. And then when the Tutankhamun exhibition came to the British Museum in 1972, and I was six... And Tutankhamun was everywhere. He was on Blue Peter, he was in the press. And I was always going on and on about Tutankhamun and ancient Egypt to my mum. And she said one night over dinner, Joanne, if if you're really so interested, you can actually be an Egyptologist as a job. That was it. Light bulb moment, okay, that's it. And that was six, six years of age and I've never done anything else. The only downside was, as my mum advised, you're gonna have to work very hard at school, pass all your exams, you know, do all your homework so it's like, oh okay, it was its quite a good payoff I thought, and uh, and I've never looked back It is, it's your
0: mother was quite right, because it's all about detail, recording, and clarity of explanation, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely so it is. And it's listening to what you see and listening to what is written, so I mean I find it entirely fascinating and I'm much newer to the whole world of Egyptology than yourself having studied more English history, but it has become a passion of mine as well so where did you first when you wanted to write a, where what was your first book where did you begin your career as an author jo
1: well, that that goes back to, oh, probably the mid-1990s. Before then, I'd, I'd acted as a consultant on other people's books, just fact-checking, things like that. But I was approached by the British Museum Press to do a book uh, on one of my great passions, which are the perfumes of ancient Egypt, the oils and perfumes of ancient Egypt. So I'm really into the sort of cosmetics and the, the, the perfumes and, and general body care and adornment. Um... And so I did this small volume uh, for British Museum Press and I had a lovely time writing it um, and that just sort of, it just made me want to write more and more. Um, and so I, I did a, a couple of sort of, I don't know, coffee table books, sort of more like a introductory guides to myths and legends of ancient Egypt, things like that. Uh, and then um, in 2003... Um, I was involved in a, a major project in the Valley of the Kings, uh, studying the mummy uh, of Nefertiti, Queen Tai, um, and a young prince. And um, I was asked to write about, you know, what, what brought me to that point um, in my career. Um, and I have a wonderful agent, Mark Lucas, who said, well, Joe, just write as you speak. Obviously, take out a few of the more colourful phrases, but uh, <laughs> right as you speak, um, and and that that should should prove uh, quite acceptable. And so I, I just took Mark's advice, and that's that's all I've done ever since. You know, I, I adore every aspect of ancient Egypt, so it's often difficult to sort of just pick one area to explore at any one time. As you know yourself, mm. um, it's it, it's such a a wonderful subject, um, but to sort of just Focus on, on the subject matter and then just let it all come come out. Uh, and and that's, that's just really how I approach things. Because I found the story of Egypt, which is one of
0: my more recent acquisitions of your books, absolutely fascinating. And yet, having read it, I could also see that The study of ancient Egypt is changing all the time as our science today um, picks up and is able to give us the interpretation of the detail, which was perhaps more guesswork in the past. Absolutely. And now we know it but it is it is so interesting, and it's, it is a huge
1: subject uh, yeah. five thousand years at least massive massive time span, but also you 're quite right about the 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 new discoveries, a lot of it informed by the science, and i 'm lucky enough to uh, work alongside my um, esteemed colleague, partner in crime and life partner uh, Dr. Stephen Buckley, and his science. Uh, on projects we work uh, together on um, really helps fill in some of the gaps in the story of Egypt, in what happened next kind of thing, pushing back the beginnings of Egyptian mummification by nearly 2,000 years, that was a, a recent project, or studying some of the royal mummies, or to try and work out how these amazing people uh, achieved the immortality they so desired that underpinned their entire civilization, how they achieved a form of immortality through mummification because for for me and for stephen it 's not about death and and mummies and gloom and doom it 's to try and understand how these people lived, what was it they wanted to continue doing in the next world. And how they wanted to transform their bodies into something that could help them achieve that. So, for us, it's, it's all about life in ancient Egypt. And that's such a, an exciting sort of buzz, really, to try and uncover that aspect of the, of the Egyptians. Because I wanted my thoughts were around doing something about
0: imagination and immortality. Perhaps can we do a program together or a book together? I would love It'd to. It would be such fun, wouldn't it? it actually, would. because it would. I find our imagination is what sets us apart. You know, I adore my horses and dogs, and they live in today, which is so important and helpful. But it's it's our imagination which sets us apart, and our restless imagination and curiosity. And there's no civilization which has better set out a clearer path to immortality than the ancient Egyptians with such
1: colour and, in some ways, with such reassurance. Exactly. I think that's you've hit the nail on the head. It's their ability to face the inevitable but transform it into something that's quite beautiful. The way that they saw not just life but what happens after death. It wasn't the end for them. It was just a continuation. And I think that gives immense reassurance to us today in the modern world because we can look at a culture, fair enough, thousands of years ago, that doesn't matter. What What matters is they found a way of coping with the inevitable and that gives us a lot of comfort in our, our lives today. If we approach, you know, uh, not just everyday life, but the big questions, immortality, etc., not just for ourselves but our loved ones, and I think if we can see it through ancient Egyptian eyes, that helps us accept and understand and come to terms with what is an inevitability for us all so I myself find a lot of comfort in that it's it's almost like you're sort of saying to yourself what what the ancient Egyptians have done yes and they usually have the answer They do normally have, but they probably better than we
0: do today. So can I ask, when did you first go to Egypt and what were your first impressions?
1: Well, I was 15. We'd been saving up for a long time. Uh, And I went with uh, our wonderful woman, my auntie, my auntie Joan, who was a great, great person. And she'd just retired from work. She'd always wanted to go to Egypt because she was born in 1921. So for the first 10, 11 years of her life, when she was one, obviously... Lord Carnarvon, Howard Carter mm. made the big find. So Tutankhamun was on the front page of the newspapers uh, as a child when she was growing up. So she was obsessed with Tutankhamun. So it wasn't just my parents' book collection that inspired me; it was my auntie's t- tales and stories of all this, that the romance, the excitement of of that that wonderful discovery. And so we were both totally smitten by ancient Egypt, but had never been. So we went together in 1981. Me at 15, my my auntie at 60, and it blew us away. We were just, we were, well, even now thinking back, it was unbelievable. It was an unbelievable, can't call it a culture shock. It it was a a big surprise. I mean, I'm from Barnsley in South Yorkshire. You probably picked that up from my accent. So we were (laughs) in a very different world, both of us. But it was a wonderful world, and it made total sense to me. Um, and I rec- going around Cairo Museum, recognizing the statue, recognizing people, seeing Tutankhamen's mask. You just wanted to go around everything and almost greet them as friends. It's like, oh hi! And uh, fabulous, fabulous. It was amazing. And then you went back.
0: During your university career? Yeah, yeah. went back fashion. again
1: um, in 1989. I was lucky enough. Um, I was by then a member of the Egypt Exploration Society, um, which I joined soon after going to university to study Egyptology at UCL in London. And um, I won a, a studentship cruise uh, offered by Swan Hellenic. And every year they take two students. Um, on the advice of the Egypt Exploration Society and and me and a, a, um, uh, a new friend, uh, we, we cruised the Nile for 17 days and again another mind-blowing experience, this was like the stuff of dreams so I thought I, I quite like this um, and seeing some of the most remote sites that you can't usually get to on the normal itinerary um, and again a total eye-opener but the only problem with Egyptology, the more you see and find out, the more you want to see and yes. find out. It's like a, a drug. It's, it's, it's it addictive, is. and it, you just can't stop. It, it it just takes over your every waking moment, and you're yes. just smitten and focused, and you're on that path. <laughs> well, I think I've come to it a little bit later, but
0: and writing The Earl and the Pharaoh, it, every... I was writing it quite late because I've got a day job here as well, so I'd write it from 3 till 10 o'clock. And when I started, Joe, I wasn't sure how much I had to write, what sort of man he was, whether there were any journals, notes, as I explored his life. And then as I began to go through it, I found there was so much I couldn't cope. And he was also finding in his life so much, so much information, so many places to work. It was again for him like a drug. Yeah. He didn't want to run three teams when he could run five teams. He, he, he just had to be there. It, it yeah. was extraordinary. It was, it was some addiction which took him over there and everything else was a paler color by comparison. Yeah. And I definitely have entered that world and it's taken me some time to come out of it, because it was just all absorbing the color and the the words I was trying to put down. It is an amazing civilization, and it's a privilege to have stepped a little bit into your world, nothing like your depth of knowledge. But I have loved everything that you've written about it, and your speech about faces and masks in the 18th dynasty, you could have heard a pin drop. And then everybody rushed and the, the bookshop sold your books just like that. <laughs> and They're going to have to get some more in, but that's great. It was a brilliant and fascinating talk, which I just wanted to segue into. Because we, obviously when the Egyptians went to the next world, they wanted to know... their their friends and everybody else knew who they were. So they needed their faces and their names and their cartouches and their eyes and their personalities and their spirit. But it was fascinating what you were saying also about... The masks they want and the development of the masks. So would you like to share a little bit of, of that? Are you going to write a book about masks? Or have you done so and I've missed it?
1: Oh no, I've I've not. I, I'm I'm just drawn to this because I thought of a title, Changing Faces. Excellent. <laughs> we, we need to do that one. Absolutely. Mm. Um i I think for me it, it it was how they managed to combine something which began as a practical measure to uh preserve the delicate facial features which the soul needed to be able to recognise in the next world to return to the mummified body, but how they they managed to turn something that was almost like a a crash helmet, for want of a better word, to preserve the facial features from any damage, into something so beautiful and so breathtaking. Because when anyone says ancient Egypt, everyone thinks of Tutankhamun. When you say Tutankhamun, everyone thinks of that golden mask. Yes. That is ancient Egypt in an, in a single object, and. I I I something that I've known my entire life virtually and I just wanted to look back where did that come from is it unique because so many people think well it, it's unique there's nothing like it that no I agree there's nothing like it for its sheer beauty and perfection and it is perfect but where did it come from what was the development from the earliest mass in Egypt and one of the things that I've, I've been privileged enough to do um, in my career is, is be involved with a lot of local museums, certainly in the north of England. For instance, at Harrogate Museum, they had the most beautiful collection of Egyptian artefacts. One of them that we were asked in uh, 2000, it was 2001, I think, to advise on was the most beautiful ancient papier-mâché mask of the jackal god Anubis. And it's unique in the world, there's nothing like it. And it's stunning. And it was in storage in this museum in North Yorkshire. And we were able uh, with our colleagues at Harrogate Museum over a few years to be able to put it back on public display for the world to enjoy. We 3D scanned it so people can look it up online and spin it round in a virtual sense and really get a feel for how aesthetic and beautiful this thing is. But it's not a death mask. It was meant to be worn by a priest wanting to personify the jackal god jackal god of embalming possibly worn during the process of embalming and mummification so a very practical mask used by the living so for me it's fascinating to see how masks were worn by the living in ancient egypt and masks worn by the dead serving similar but different purposes almost to sort of transform the everyday or the mundane into something far more aesthetic far more immortal again as we as we touched on at the beginning Of this chat, this desire for immortality, um, in its many different forms, and by masking, that's that's a way to achieve that. You've achieved this sense of perfection of 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 beauty uh, that can last forever, really.
0: It is extraordinary. Of course, Tutankhamun's famous golden mask has been the subject of much scrutiny, and the question is whether it was actually his face or that of Nefertiti, and. Joe showed at the history festival that's um, a slide of three different coffins of Tutankhamun. And you can see how the innermost coffin looks different from the two outermost coffins. We've got a replica of the Rishi coffin, the feathered, the feathers that gather you up to help you on your journey through the dead here at Highclere, because it's less, perhaps on display everywhere. But the innermost coffin is, I think, so beautiful. Because I think that's the person, which I think I think you think as well. And the others were perhaps adapted
1: in haste because he was so young when he died. Absolutely. They were very good at adapting, reusing, recycling. Again, And uh, we in the modern world think we have all the answers. Yes, we can repurpose, we can recycle. It's like, oh, hang on, 5,000 years ago, the Egyptians were very good at it, far better at it, in, yeah. in, in fact. And sometimes they were using or reusing, recycling uh, objects used by previous generations, but I do think the more I, I, I look at all this, there is an element of using uh, objects from uh, the, the burials of one's predecessors or things that had belonged to your, the previous monarch, your father, your grandfather, your uncle, um, in your own tomb to sort of suggest this continuity of lineage um, so there was, there was some aspect of recycling and reusing, but there were also some aspects of wanting to tap into that continuum of royal power. It's like the divine soul of Egypt inhabited the bodies of every monarch in succession. So the living pharaoh at any one time was, was the living embodiment of what it was to be pharaoh. At their death, their successor took over, and that royal soul... Sort of inhabited their bodies, so it, it's almost like a transference of power, in a, in a in a very esoteric sense. But not just within the physical body, but within the funerary objects, within the coffins, within the masks. The Egyptians definitely believed in this ability of the soul to to continue to live uh, and to inhabit these different objects, not just a physical body, but but the masks, the coffins, the statues. And so it's this wonderful world of. Uh, rather esoteric ideas but very profound beliefs and I think more than any other culture the Egyptians have been able to transfer what was in their head into the most wonderful tangible physical forms of art because these are artworks as well as coffins and and masks Mm -hmm. they are exquisite things um and they I are found works very modern, of art, yeah. and I
0: think that's what fascinated the fifth Earl of Carnarvon, because he found, particularly in the eighteenth dynasty, works of art, the most extraordinary objects, which, which encompassed all that you're talking about. And whenever I go to the Met, well, in the past, before COVID times, I I love to go in there and just look at some of his objects. And one of my most favourite is the fras the the um, fragment, Jasper fragment of Nefertiti's face. So it's just a little bit of the lower part of her face, and there's something so extraordinarily beautiful that it transcends space and time. It could be in MoMA, it could be in the Met, the Tate, the Louvre, the British Museum. It's an extraordinary work of art. It absolutely is. And that's what he loved and which he appreciated. So that things like that have also given me a way into his head and spirit a little bit. And, and actually, just to digress, I went to the um, temple of Dendera. Oh my goodness, it's, it's a fascinating temple. Um, there's a little bit on my Instagram for those who are listening. It's again about the reanimation of statues dedicated to Hathor. It's the most beautiful, beautiful temple on two levels, utterly unique and really, really worth a visit. It just blew my husband and myself away and somewhere I can't wait to go back again. It's
1: stunning um, and for me uh, one Thank of us. one of my great passions is, is the great Cleopatra and so much of Dendera. I mean her father built Dendera. She did a lot of the, uh, the, the well can you call it decor uh, the, <laughs> the images um, and a wonderful uh, astronomical scene um, it, it is, it is out splendid, of this world and I think yeah. it
0: was also built on the site of a much earlier temple so Of all the temples that I've seen recently, that one, to my mind, was so extraordinary. The the astronomy and the stars that I stare up to
1: today, every night when I take my dogs out, there they are on the ceiling of this temple. Absolutely. And and dedicated to the great goddess Hathor, the maternal goddess of love and beauty, the ancient Egyptian version of the Grim Reaper. I mean, typical Western culture, we have a Grim Reaper holding his scythe, all doom and gloom. The Egyptians had this beautiful smiling goddess. And that's it in a nutshell. That's the difference between them and us. They had hope for the next world. And I think... That's encapsulated in, in the figure of Hathor and in her beautiful temple at Dendera. So it is a stunning, stunning temple. It really is. Um, I'm... Going
0: back this year, whether you're going back as well for the centenary celebration, but I can't wait to go back across and spend a bit of time just wandering. Actually, well, for the without cent- being on a
1: on a, on a schedule of going yeah. here or taking people round, I just want to be. <laughs> well, there are there are two things uh, that I'm passionate about. One is Egypt, of course. The other is where I'm from, Yorkshire, and my hometown, Barnsley. So, Egypt is a, a fantastic destination for the centenary, but also I'm curating a. A wonderful new exhibition in my hometown, Barnsley. On uh, it's called Tut Twenty Two: The Life of Tut and Carmen. Can I come like and do a talk
0: with you or something. Or I,
1: will, I we would do love do something that. together? Yes, because please. Let's have some fun. That would be amazing because I've also made links with the Carnarvon family and Barnsley, which is something... I, it's proved unexpected to me. Um, and there are all these amazing figures uh, from the who uh, the 5th oh, Earl knew socially and worked with who came from Barnsley. And for me, that's, that sets my world on fire. It's like... Can life get better? Ancient <laughs> Egypt and Barnsley. Genius. Love it, love it. So I'd be delighted. It'd be delighted fun to do something, if, if wouldn't it? To get yeah. help,
0: bring it alive. Because although the world of ancient Egypt is, we refer to it as the book of the dead, and it's obviously long gone and dead, it's not. It is so full of life yeah. and colour and... The brightness and the sun, it's about everything
1: positive. Well, absolutely. We call it the book of the dead. The Egyptians called it the book of coming forth by day. Yes. So every time the sun comes out, the dead live again. And that's the most optimistic way to look at life in, in any culture. And I think it's much needed today. Um,
0: I've, read your, I've also read your book on Nefertiti, so I just want to go back to Nefertiti because that was well that 's she who was most beautiful, basically yeah. Nefer is beautiful isn 't it but and my my hieroglyphics are a little bit there, but not all much that there but i i have I enjoy it because again, the sophistication of how they wrote and described the person in script and um, decoration i mean to be a scribe was to be an artist. And, you know, the, the the whole word Nefertiti is both art and writing. And again, after Tutankhamun, I think his stepmother, Nefertiti, is one of the most famous women in the world. Absolutely. Apart from, obviously, Cleopatra and some of the earlier queens who are extraordinary. But Nefertiti has stood for the greatest beauty of all time. Oh,
1: absolutely. I mean, what an icon. What a, a giant figure in Egyptian history. And for me, she's so brilliant because she's always been dismissed because she's so extraordinarily beautiful. That bust in Berlin is so breathtaking, and yet she was so much more than that. She mm. she had six children at least. Um it, A lot of Egyptologists, myself included, firmly believe she succeeded her husband Akhenaten. As Smenkhari, Exactly, ruled as a female pharaoh, one of almost, well, at least 15 female pharaohs. Um, these women weren't just queens, they were kings, they were pharaohs, they were mighty figures. And their influence on Egyptian culture is profound. And we should really get over ourselves in terms of thinking pharaohs are just men, they all do the active stuff, they're the strong leaders. No, the Egyptians are showing us there is another way. uh, These women were Cleopatra, led her armies into battle, led her own navy, had four children, put up with Mark Antony. (laughs) <laughs> Genius woman. So they are Those all real heroes of yeah. mine, and to study these women and to write about them in 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 these these biographies um, that I've been uh, lucky enough to be able to do, it's it's just a privilege, uh, a joy. You just immerse yourself in their world. You 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 feel like you are back there when you're writing about these things. Well, figures. I do. When
0: I read your books, I am back there. So thank you for writing these books. Can you share? Is there a new book project you're involved with? What, there,
1: there might well be. I'm still thinking of uh, subjects. I've, I've currently done a few children's books with Darlene Kindersley and, and worked with them because I'm passionate about education for children uh, when it's linked to ancient Egypt, certainly. Um, and we've got quite a few ideas for what to do next but the exhibition exhibition's the big one when that's yes. uh sorted um I, i'm lo- looking forward to seeing it i oh, would i would, I would love, love you to see it i would love you to see it and we we've, we've also got a smaller exhibition opening at scarborough museums and that's a photographic um exhibition that opens on the centenary in november and that's looking at the egyptian influence on architecture right across all parts of yorkshire because we've got pyramids Replicate temples, yeah. obelisks, yeah. going back to Georgian times. Yeah. How ancient Egypt has physically changed the Yorkshire landscape. I'm sure it's changed other places in Britain, but because I am so focused on Yorkshire and the <laughs> North, um, I have to I have to sort of rein myself in sometimes. But th- there is so much that I want to do. I really want to do so much more. Um, so it's a question of balancing all these projects and finding the time. But Egypt's always at the heart of it. And uh, so whatever I write about next Egypt will be uh, front and centre for sure.
0: Well, your partner is also a most remarkable man, and I imagine that your daughter will also follow If, you, if you've got a daughter haven't you yes. your daughter will follow in your first steps
1: <laughs> well we'd like to think so but it's uh, it's it's really a case of oh mum or oh dad not ancient Egypt again you know the, the poor love I mean we, she's, she's been dragged around Egypt so often in the Mediterranean and all these ancient sites and she likes them she's interested in them she had a a, a private car trip around the pyramids when she was about four while we were filming myself and her dad and uh, I thought Oh she's going to love this. So she got out of the car. Uh what did you think? What did you think? Well they were very big. Um and that was about it really. I don't think she's well, she's, she's right. Yeah, she, I don't they think she's are. yet got the bug. No, not no. quite. But I'm I'm living in hope that uh, I mean she's now eighteen, so I'm I'm hoping that it, it might sort of come to us slowly. She's getting into the idea of of, of the, the female pharaohs and the great female deities. She's really interested in that. So I'm hoping there might be a way, you know, sort of a pincer movement somehow to get her interested in it all. Um but yeah, uh, uh, I'm, I'm trying to stay open-minded as to whether she does actually get the same bug as, as myself and her dad.
0: <laughs> yes, no, I agree. My my own son, you know, I used to push him towards history, and um, and then I've learned not to, and I think he's coming round back towards history, but he's certainly not going to admit it <laughs> to Exactly, me, exactly. And that's the better way to go. Having said that, I think the glint of gold in Tutankhamun has, I hope, converted so many children when they're younger to dream of becoming an Egyptologist just like you and I'm very lucky to have stepped a little bit into your world so thank you Joe, so much for being here with me today thank you it's
1: been a total pleasure thanks thank for inviting me thank you
0: Hello this is Lady Carnarvon and just to say please do subscribe to this podcast then you can be first on the list every time it comes out.